Nau mai, haere mai, kia ora tātou, and welcome to episode 13 in the Auckland Writers Festival Winter Series. Ko Paula Morris, toko ingoa, my name is Paula Morris, and as ever, for the last time, I'm speaking to you from Grays Avenue in central Auckland, Tamaki Makaurau. This is our final episode in the Winter Series. Though we began in lockdown, through writers and books, we've been able to explore many words, worlds, sorry, words and worlds. In Travels with Herodotus, Richard Kapuzinski wrote, a journey after all neither begins in the instant we set out, nor ends when we have reached our doorstep once again. It starts much earlier and is really never over because the film of memory continues running on inside of us. In this episode, we'll be roaming in time and place with four writers. I'll talk with each of them, we'll hear a reading. Towards the end of the episode, uh, most of our writers will regather via the magic of Zoom for a final chat. Please feel free, as usual, to make comments or ask questions throughout the episode using the chat functions on Facebook and YouTube. Now, this is the last time I'll have to give you the following bossy instructions. Please don't click on any links in the comments unless those links are supplied by the Auckland Writers Festival. And please don't give anyone your money because this series is free to view. Now, of course, you can give your money to booksellers. Just click on the buy the book link in the episode description. Thanks to the festival team, to our generous technical partner, Auckland Live, and to Copyright Licensing New Zealand for their support in making this series possible. Now, let's welcome our writers, uh, Maggie O'Farrell, the author of Hamnet. Kia ora, Maggie. Hi, Kiora. Is that what you're saying? I'm not sure. I've never said that before. Well, you did it very well. So, and Maggie, where are you? Where are you right now? I am at home in Edinburgh, and it's evening, and it's been a beautiful day actually. So, yeah, that's where I am in Scotland. Great, thank you, Maggie. Uh, Colin Thubron, uh, author of Shadow of the Silk Road. Kiora, Colin. Hello, from a rather drizzly London. It's uh, evening here, of course, and still very light. No, no, dark <laughs> and, and listening. <laughs> the dark descends. <laughs> and uh, joining us closer to home, uh, please welcome Rose Liu, the author of All Who Live on Islands. Kia ora, Rose. Uh, morena, I'm just here from Ponake, so yeah, very close compared to a lot of the others. So Rose is in Wellington, dragging herself from her bed. Very nice to see you. And finally, please welcome Anne Patchett, the author of The Dutch House. Hello. Hello. Um, I am here in the States, in Nashville, Tennessee, where it's scorching hot and really muggy. <laughs> Very nice. Thank you all so much for joining us. Now, we're going to talk to Maggie first, so the three of you uh, stay tight, and I will be back with you in a moment. I'm eager to get to, to Maggie to begin with because she's had a family emergency today and can only join us for a while in our episode. Maggie, as many of you know, was born in Northern Ireland. Her family moved to the UK when she was a child in the 70s. She's worked as a journalist and literary editor. She's the award-winning author of eight novels and the memoir, I Am, I Am, I Am, 17 Brushes with Death. Her latest novel, Hamnet, transports us to the late 16th century, interweaving the stories of Shakespeare's courtship and the early years of his marriage with the crisis that devastates the family, when their 11-year-old twins, Judith and Hamnet, contract the plague. It's been described as a novel about the uncertain border between life and death, the psychological hinterlands that separate and bind the living and the dead, and the troublesome claims of each on each. 
Tanakoi Maggie, thank you very much for making time for us today. That's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, Maggie, absolutely loved your novel and the New York Times said of it that few good novelists have dared conjure Shakespeare, the English language's unparalleled genius as a character, much less pulled it off. And they say O'Farrell's own genius was to see a literary opportunity in the paucity of information about Shakespeare's domestic life and in the connection between his dead son and his great play. Now, that's all true, I think, except to say the real centre of your novel and its revelation is the woman we know as Anne Hathaway. But you call her other names, and I wondered if you'd begin by talking about the fluid nature of names in that era and why she appears as Agnes on the page. Well, I originally conceived the book. I mean, it's a book I wanted to write for a really long time. I mean, I first heard about the existence of the boy Hamlet, Shakespeare's only son, when I was uh, 16 and I was studying the play Hamlet at school. And I had this absolutely brilliant English teacher. I was really lucky. And he just mentioned in passing one day that Shakespeare had had a son with the name Hamlet. And he explained that, you know, spelling in Elizabethan times was a lot less stable. And in fact, Hamnet and Hamlet are the same name. And they are, as I discovered later, completely interchangeable in Paris records of the time. And so, it, you know, it's not this kind of boy behind the play, in a sense, has haunted me for a really long time. Um, and I've tried to write the novel. I tried it, I think, three, three times. Um, and I ended up kind of swerving away three times and writing three other books actually to date because I kept thinking actually no I can't do it I can't do it or I mean one thing that actually really stopped me was an odd sort of superstition um because I have a son myself and I I realized actually that I was unable to write the book while he was still under the age of 11 which of course is the age that Hamlet Shakespeare died so I had to wait until my son was older he's now a six strapping six foot 17 year old so <laughs> not that he was under much threat of uh contracting a black death. But I think so. I, I originally conceived the novel um, to be about fathers and sons, which, of course, the play is. Um, but actually, what I was really unprepared for when I actually started digging into the research about Shakespeare's life, because, of course, you know, so much is written about him. Um, you could spend your whole life actually reading about Shakespeare. But I think I've always felt that Hamnet, the boy, has never been given his due. He's never been... Um, given the significance which I think he has, I think without him and without his death, I don't think we would have the play Hamlet. I don't think we would have the play Twelfth Night. You know, so we, as audiences and as readers, owe a huge debt. You know, it's not nothing to call a play after your dead son. To me, it seems an enormously significant act and it's speaking volumes to us as an audience about this very mysterious man. Um, but actually what I was really unprepared for was reading about Shakespeare was how... Um, vilified his wife, the woman we know as Anne Hathaway, has been throughout history for the last 400 years. You know, one biographer describes her as the wife-shaped void. Um, but what seems to have happened for some inexplicable reason is that biographers and critics and scholars and writers of films and writer, other writers of novels have rushed to fill this void with a huge amount of hatred and hostility. And, you know, she's been labelled as this kind of cradle-snatching, ignorant, peasant who lured this uh, young, innocent genius into marriage. And I, you know, all that stuff, it made me so furious, all this kind of barefaced misogyny and this weird sort of backdated desire to give him a retrospective divorce was bizarre. I don't know where it came from or why, you know, there's no explanation for it. And so I, uh, I thought, well, I really want to, I want to give them both a marriage, you know, that my 
the wife of my wife of William is going to be a different woman, and that they're going to have a partnership. But one of the things that, that was a gift for a novelist actually was I read um, her father's will. So Richard Hathaway died a year before um, William and Anne got married, and in his will he leaves her a very generous dowry, but he names her as my daughter Agnes. Um, and I thought, you know, if anyone knows her true name, it would be her father. And have we been calling her by the wrong name for almost half a century? And it just seemed very emblematic of how I think, how I think, how misunderstood and misrepresented she has been. So, yes, yeah, so, sorry, that's a very long answer to your very short question. No, I mean, it's, it's really interesting to me because I've read Germaine Greer's book, Shakespeare's Wife, and she's saying exactly what you are, that there's this orthodoxy of Shakespeare's scholarship saying Anne Hathaway was illiterate and that she was unloved, and she describes it as just misogynist conjecture. Now, in a novel you're writing, that's another form of conjecture, obviously, but you create this picture of her as a very gifted and independent young woman, very unusual, who sees something extraordinary in this kind of sulky local youth who's a Latin tutor, and her own brother thinks that this young man is unworthy of her, and that you also create someone who's instrumental in his escape to London away from his terrible father and narrow life. So you're really revisioning a marriage that's really at the heart of your novel. Would, would mm. you say that is true? Or? Yeah, absolutely. I think I was, you know, I think there are so many, there are so many beloved wives in Shakespeare's plays. And obviously you have to be a little bit careful about reading too much of his biography and his plays, but you know, these very faithful and beloved wives come from somewhere, you know, and I think people are very, it is a very popular, as Jermaine Greer so brilliantly pointed out, it is a very popular conjecture that they, he hated her and he regretted his marriage. But, you know, at the end of his life, you know, at the end of his career, he was the equivalent of a multimillionaire, you know, who's an incredibly successful businessman as well as being a pretty good playwright. Um, but he chose, instead of living, you know, he, he could have lived anywhere in London. He was a very, very wealthy man. He was, um, but instead of, you know, he, he, he lived in very, very modest lodgings in London and he sent all his money back to Stratford where he bought fields and cottages and he bought his wife and daughters an enormous, I mean, a mansion of a house the year after Hamlet died. Um, so I don't know, it, it, that doesn't speak to me of a man who regretted his marriage and hated his wife. And at the end of his career, when he retired, he went back to Stratford to live with his wife, which again, doesn't <laughs> imply that it, it, was a, it was a marriage he regretted. So I suppose I, I wanted, you know, and obviously everybody has a version of Shakespeare, everyone has their own version of Shakespeare in their mind. And mine is just one of many, many, many versions. But I wanted to give him I give them both actually a marriage of partnership or the marriage of exchange. And yes, it's possible and probable that she was illiterate, but that doesn't mean she was stupid. Yes. Maggie, would you read to us from the book, please? Sure. Um, so this is when um, the, uh, there's a Latin tutor. I don't actually name, I don't use the word, the name Shakespeare anywhere, anywhere in the book, because you just, I found that I, you just can't write it in a sentence without feeling like an Egypt. On a morning in early spring, a Latin tutor is standing at the farm in Hewlands, absently tugging on the hoop through his left ear. He is watching the trees. The boys are behind him. They are conjugating verbs, temporarily unheard by the tutor, who is intent on the startling contrast between the sharply blue spring sky and the new leaf green of the forest. The colours seem to fight, vying for supremacy, vibrancy, the green versus the blue, one against the other. The children's Latin verbs wash over him, through him, like the wind through the trees. 
He is just about to turn and face his pupils when he sees from the trees a figure emerge. For a moment, the tutor believes it to be a young man. He is wearing a cap, a leather jerkin, gauntlets. He moves out of the trees with a brand of masculine entitlement, covering the ground with booted strides. There is some kind of bird on his outstretched fist, chestnut brown with a creamy white chest, its wings spotted with black. It sits hunched, subdued, its body swaying with the movements of its companion, its familiar. The tutor is imagining this person, this hawk-taming youth, to be some kind of factotum to the farm or a relative to the family, a visiting cousin perhaps. And he registers the long plait hanging over the shoulder, reaching past the waist, the jerkin laced tight around a form that curves suspiciously inwards around the middle. He sees the skirts, which had been bunched up, now hastily being dragged down around the stockings. He sees a pale oval face under the cap, an arched brow. He moves closer to the glass, leaning on the sill, and watches as the woman moves from the right to the left of the window frame, her bird riding on her fist, her skirt swishing around her boots. Then she enters the farmyard, moves through the chickens and geese, around the side of the house, and is gone. He straightens, his frown vanished, a smile forming under his scant beard. Behind him, the room has fallen silent. He recalls himself, the lesson, the boys, the verb conjugation. He turns, he arches his fingers together, as he imagines a tutor ought to do, as his own masters did at school not so long ago. Excellent, he says to them. They look towards him, plants turning to, to the sun. The younger, where have I got now? What is the name of that serving girl? The one with the bird, he asks. Thank you. Thank you, Maggie. Just thinking about your portrayal of Agnes, of someone who is a very independent young woman. She, as you say, is an orphan um, when we first meet her, who is really independent and in control of her own destiny. She's also someone who sees things, doesn't she? She has old knowledge and second sights. And I wondered if an element of, of the death of Hamlet, the, the reason it so destabilizes the family, is because she's had a vision and his death somehow betrays what she always thought would happen in her life. Well, I think it goes back, I think my image of her um, goes back to actually, you mentioned Jermaine Greer's brilliant book about her, of course, Shakespeare's wife. Um, and, you know, in that, Jagrius says that actually the question that everybody has always asked is, why did he marry her? Why did he, this, you know, unparalleled genius, marry this woman who was in all probability illiterate? But Greer says, actually, we're asking the wrong question. What we should be asking is, why does she marry him? <laughs> you know, Shakespeare was from a family. I mean, his father had been a very, he'd been high alderman, um, which is a kind of equivalent of a mayor in Stratford-upon-Avon. And he'd been a very respectable uh, tradesman. He'd been a glover, one of the most successful in the town. But by the time Shakespeare was 18, by the time he got married, he'd, he'd really fallen from grace. And his father had got in all sorts of entanglements with the law and he'd been prosecuted for various things and he'd been prosecuted for not attending church and for leaving um, what they describe as orgia in the, in the street. Uh, and he got into illegal world trading. So the whole family had, had experienced this kind of economic and social decline. Um, and she, you know, th there is a question of why this 26-year-old woman who was from quite a respectable family, her father had been a sheep farmer, they owned a lot of land, you know, she was pretty wealthy. She'd been left a very generous dowry. Why did this 26-year-old woman from a good family, why did she marry this penniless, <laughs> this penniless youth whose family was in disgrace? And that really intrigued me because, you know, 
I suppose I was just trying to imagine what the 18-year-old Shakespeare would have been like. You know, how did he appear in this rural market town in Warwickshire in the late 16th century? You know, I mean, he must have been, he must have been extraordinary even then. You know, I mean, he left school at 15, um, unlike, say, Johnson and Marlowe, who both went to university, Shakespeare did not go to university, he probably only left grammar school at age 15. I mean, Imagine being his teacher, imagine being his <laughs> Greek teacher or his rhetoric teacher, you know. It's impossible to imagine how much he must have stuck out like a sore thumb in this rural market town. And I was just thinking, well, maybe maybe she saw something in him. You know, why else would she have married him? You know, there was there was quite a big age gap. There was eight years between them. Um, and, she, yes, she was, she was three months pregnant when they got married. But, actually, if you check the records, about a third of brides were pregnant by the time they got married. And it was to do with the tradition, 16th century tradition of hand fasting. It was a kind of a, a sort of casual agreement or engagement between couples. So I suppose I just, I really, I was so intrigued and inspired by Duane Greer turning this whole um, preconception we have about them on its head and saying, why did she marry him? And that's where I got this idea of her seeing something in him. Maybe everybody else thought he was just a bit odd and eccentric, but maybe she saw something really special about him. You portray his relationship with his father as, as very bad. I mean, his father is, is monstrous and quite brutishly violent to all his family. Does this have um, any historical record to it or was it your imagining of the relationship? Well, again, you know, there is so little known about any of them, particularly William Shakespeare, you know, we only have, I think, six examples of his signature. So he, you know, what we actually know, concrete evidence about him is very, very scant. You know, we have this incredible output of his, you know, enormous output of his plays and poetry, but only thanks to his friends. Shakespeare, again, unlike Marlowe and Johnson, made no effort to preserve his work for posterity. The only reason we have it is because his friends and colleagues uh, printed it, uh, you know, and gathered it together. All the foul papers and all the manuscripts gathered them together and made the first folio. So Shakespeare, you know, he, he is a very mysterious character. There's so little known. And these, you know, you read these sort of massive 500-page biographies and they are all, you know, stitched together. <laughs> They're almost, they are a little bit like novels in a sense. Um, but John Shakespeare, uh, William's father, um, there is actually a, a lot, you know, by contrast, actually a large amount of documentation about him is <laughs> mainly legal wrangles, unfortunately, things like getting fined for not attending church and leaving what my father would describe as shite in the street. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, you know, I just got the picture. I mean, you know, to be, to be very honest about, you know, I, I, it's very possible I owe a big apology to the real John Shakespeare. Perhaps he was a lovely man. Perhaps he was a life and soul of the party and he and William adored each other. You know, that is, that's unfortunately what novelists do, but <laughs> we do, we can twist things. But just from the picture of all these documents about him, I got the picture of a man who's a little, perhaps a little bit erratic. And you know, I don't really know why he, just being a glover wasn't enough for him. And he decided to become an illegal wool trader, which was outside all the laws of the guild, the guild hall. Um, you know, it, it, it is a baffling thing for him to have done. So I just, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's possible he was lovely, but also I did wonder where, in Shakespeare's work, where the Coriolanus is and the Macbeths and the King Lears come from. And I feel, I don't know, I feel that writers, those sort of slightly despotic, angry, thwarted men whose perhaps best years are behind them uh, and their ambitions, the sort of fall from grace and this ambition, thwarted ambition, 
it just kind of uh, spiraled into a picture for me from this very difficult father-son relationship. Now, Maggie, I know you have to go and we should also move on, but a, a viewer has asked if you could just elaborate briefly on what you see the connection between Hamlet's death and the writing of Twelfth Night. Well, as, as, you, as you probably know, that Hamlet uh, was a fraternal twin. He had a twin sister called Judith. Um, and as anyone who knows about Shakespeare's plays, the boy and girl twins is a motif that recurs again and again in his plays. And Twelfth Night um, features uh, Viola and Sebastian who are separated and they both think the other one is dead. And then they are magically reunited. Um, and one of the things, like one of the most heartbreaking things I discovered actually while I was researching for this book, researching this book, um, is that the opening night of Twelfth Night was at the Globe, uh, the, the original Globe Theatre, of course, and it was on what would have been the twins' birthday. And this would have been about, I think, five or six years after Hamlet died. And that really got me. It was like a kind of huge blow, because um, I thought, well, you know, it, it's not a coincidence. <laughs> and of course, of course he would have chosen that date for this play. And it, it just really broke my heart, because again, it was like, it was one of those things that I felt you know, the signs and the facts we know about Shakespeare are very scant and he is a very mysterious person, but that felt like a, he, an arm reaching out from history and saying, this is what I think, this is how I felt. I, uh, I was so upset about the death of my son and the separation between my boy and girl twins that I wrote a play where they are reunited and, it's, and, it, and it opened, the opening night was on their birthday. Thank you so much, Maggie. Um, we, we will let you go. I know you have family business to attend to. Thank, Thank you so very much. much for joining us. It was so nice to, so nice to be around. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you. Our next writer today is Colin Thubron, celebrated both as a travel writer and a novelist. His, <clears throat> sorry, his books I've become verklempt. <clears throat> his books include Among the Russians and in Siberia, Landmark Books, Exploring Russia. I'm very sorry. <coughs> oh, dear me. Um, I'm sorry, I'm just going to race through this. Uh, there's also Behind the Wall, A Journey Through China, which was published in 1987, the first book I ever read of his, and the more recent, To a Mountain in Tibet. To embark on a journey, he has said, is my profession, even though these journeys have led him into many dangerous places and encounters. And in fact, uh, in the book that we're discussing today, to dental treatment without anesthetic in Iran. His 2006 book, Shadow of the Silk Road, is now part of the Vintage Voyages series and recounts a journey of over 11,000 kilometers that took eight months, broken by fighting in Afghanistan, following what Colin describes as a ghost that flows through the heart of Asia. Tanakwe Colin, and welcome. Thank you. Um, please forgive my coughing, I'm sorry. Right. Now, Colin, this is perhaps a strange time to be discussing travel writing and a book about such a marathon journey that really could not be made right now. Now, you made much of that journey during another health crisis, SARS, but our current pandemic is now on a much larger scale. Do you think, will travel writings of this kind still be possible moving forward? Oh, yes, I think so. I, it always seems as if, um, you know, the crisis we're in at the moment is going to last forever, but it won't, and people are going to want to go on travelling. Um, people are going to want to go on writing about it. Um, it. It won't last forever. It, at the moment, of course, it seems 
um, terribly depressing friends who are travel writers are wondering um, whether anybody's going to read their books. They're going to seem so irrelevant, but it'll change. I'm glad to hear it. Um, now, the Silk Road from ancient Antioch in the west and what's now Turkey to Xi'an in the east and China, which you say was once the greatest city in the world, is in fact not a single road, but what you describe as a shifting fretwork of arteries and veins that served as a complicated relay race, as you describe it, along which few made the, the complete journey. But I was also interested to see that the, the very phrase, the Silk Road, is in fact quite a recent coinage. Would you... Tell us about that, please. Yes, it was coined by a German geographer called von Richthofen. And uh, what the uh, different people called it, um, I don't know whether it had a, 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 an overall name. Um, one tends to forget about the Silk Road. It is, or, or was rather, um, a very intricate series of different roads that sort of bifurcated and meandered, um, not only across the heart of Asia, uh, overland, but even by sea. Um, it was uh, uh, for 2,000 years um, this land, th this uh, route was being altered by invasion, by the movements of peoples. Um, it's a very fragmented, in a way, um, a phenomenon. Now, in this book, you take us to temples, crypts, mosques, ruins. Also, there's a lot of borders and frontiers, obviously, where languages and religions and cultures clash. And you write in some detail of the Uyghurs of uh, Kashgar and Khotan, now subject to a so-called de-radicalization or what others might call a determined program of ethnic cleansing. When you were making your journey, one of your Uyghur interviewees complained about the military occupation as he saw it then. So does anything in the news today surprise you? Um, the severity of it surprises me and saddens me. Um, but I'm not altogether surprised. Um, this, uh, it sounds awful to generalise, but I think the present Chinese regime uh, hates difference and any sort of possibility of insurrection. It's been very mild among the Uyghur. The Uyghur people are just 11 million in this immense populous nation. Um, but they are still seen as some kind of threat, dissidents um, in their, their Islamic, of course, makes them different. And what I experienced when I was traveling was the ethnic difference of them. Um, all over the Silk Road, one um, encountered this, that people were not conforming to the political boundaries that you see on the map. And the Uyghur have a strong, um, strangely enough, uh, European influence in their ethnic makeup, um, which goes back to a very early time when the mummies that were dug up in the Taklamakan Desert, which is the heart of their homeland, uh, were found to have uh, red hair, yellow beards and so on, and were big um, East European looking people. And all over the Silk Road, I found this even now, that um, people were much more mixed than was apparent. And you could be a thousand miles within China, which is modern Xinjiang, and found that the people have become these Muslim, um, probably uh, influenced by Iran a great deal, a very different ethnic mix. You know, you cross over uh, into Uzbekistan, for instance, 
and found that on each side of the Afghan border with Uzbekistan, there would be not Afghans, but Uzbeks. You would continue through uh, Afghanistan, as I did, and find that ethnicities were changing all the time. And suddenly in the west of Afghanistan, you were Persian people. Then you got into Iran, and you were three quarters of the way across Iran, and suddenly there were Turkic people, Aziris, and so on. And finally you reached Turkey and um, thought, oh, you they've got this has got to be a simple border. But no, it's Kurds on both sides of the border. And all these political boundaries, um, if you look at it from the point of view of probably the White House or Downing Street, it all looks very tidy and easy. But in fact, when you travel there, you realize how complicated it is. And even Antioch itself, ancient Antioch, which was Greek, and is now part of Turkey and is either the starting point or the ending point of the Silk Road, as you say, actually belonged to Syria, is that right, until the 30s, and Arabic is still spoken there. Yes. Um, there again, it's, a, it's, a, it's mainly uh, Turkish now, of course. And you see this rather extraordinary um, port, as it was in the Roman period, where the silk disappeared over the Mediterranean for sale, um, in hundreds of different ports. And now it's completely landlocked, um, just a, a harbour with some fallen columns and ruins there and uh, nobody living there at all. It, it belongs to nobody, apparently. Colin, would you read to us from the book, please? Yes, well, this is a, a passage which um, does indeed um, reflect on the Uyghur people. Um, it was actually written in 2003, this part of the book, at a time when the SARS virus had just broken out in China. And I'm coming to Xinjiang, the big Uyghur province of northwest China. Um, I've just I've left previously Jiaoguan, which is the last really Chinese ethnic city on my route. I was going from east to west. And I'm in a bus with um, Uyghur, Uyghur people. Over this desolation, centuries of caravans had moved. Through my splintered window, I looked out on their memory with amazement. At different periods, everything on the known earth had passed this way. Frankincense, rhinoceros horn, cucumbers, musk, dwarfs, lapis lazuli, peacocks, indigo eyeshadow, the monopoly of the Chinese empress, even a caged lion or two. Wares changed hands so often or so distantly that their origins became fabulous and forgotten. Amber was carried down from the Baltic along the Russian rivers by red-haired giants, the most disgusting savages the world has ever seen, thought Persian middlemen. Wherever a tiger died, some Chinese imagined, its eyes became amber underground. In the seventh century, even a pair of Arabian ostriches was marched to China. Their speed and digestion, they ate metal, a great marvel. Just to my north, the route along the choked wells and streams had grown harsher with the centuries, but the barren Kunlun mountains offered perverse protection. Nomads and bandits shunned it. And now towards evening, the road smoothed out. The sun went down softly, invisibly into the haze, and the Uyghur farmers were all asleep. A wind started to moan over the dunes. Only a handsome woman in a gold-threaded headscarf went on sitting upright in front with her child beside the driver, singing. We came into church and at nightfall, 
Along the mud walled streets, double gates swung onto family courtyards where old people reclined on wooden divans and women moved in a glint of gold. Here and there, a lustic mosque sent wobbly minarets into the night. Church and center foreshadowed all these oasis towns, a few wide Chinese streets converging on a crossroads where a pillar quoted the sayings of Mao Zedong or his statue greeted a grateful Muslim peasant and all around were the massed, unspeaking suburbs of the poor. But in the center, our bus was flagged down and a team of SARS officials boarded, a faceless policeman, a lanky municipal worker, and an official in a peasant cap and dark glasses. An edict had gone out from Beijing, the official said, that any travelers who couldn't prove their movements must be quarantined for two weeks, the length of time the virus took to develop. I fixed my mask uselessly over my mouth, but my luck had run out. SARS had broken out in Jiaguan, the official said. He was very sorry. I answered with deepening hopelessness that Jiaguan was already a thousand miles behind us. But five minutes later, a truck was taking me to a quarantine compound. I felt the irrational guilt of someone already ill. The driver averted his face from me. It was an empty municipal building stranded in fields. The official released the chain across its entrance and stayed on the other side. You can't leave here, he said. In the weak moonlight, his dark glasses gaped like eye sockets. Perhaps some second-hand memory of camps or sanatoria tinted this harmless scene with horror because I began instinctively to look for an escape. A Uyghur doctor came to the gate to meet us but did not dare shake my hand. A bevy of nurses flittered behind him. Above their masks, their eyes were wide with alarm and curiosity. One of them led me inside to a big room under a birth control poster in Uyghur. A white bed stood on a white tile floor with a rickety table. The doctor pointed out a makeshift lavatory built in the grounds a few days earlier. It already stank. In two weeks you will be dead, he said, if you have it. But he spoke gently as though apologizing to me. Yola, thank you so much for that. Now, Colin, um, your language skills have made many of the conversations and interviews possible in your books, like the one you were just reading to us. And you said that you need to be able to talk to people, otherwise you can't find out what's going on. What languages do you speak or will speak well enough to be able to communicate? Um, well, mainly Russian. Um, I, uh, for this book, um, I have a, a spoken Mandarin after um, dreadful labors. Um, I learned the Pinyin system, which is a romanization of the Chinese characters. Um, so it's a cheat. Um, I could speak and sometimes understand, um, but I couldn't read or write a word. So those have been the two languages I've struggled with all my life, or half of it at any rate, uh, Russian and, and Mandarin. Now, the word allergic has come up a number of times in reviews of Shadow of the Silk Road, and it reminded me of the reception for that wonderful book by Jan Morris, Trieste and the Meaning of Nowhere. Do you see this book yourself as allergic, or is this a reviewing inevitability when a writer reaches a certain age, shall we say, or revisits a place they've written about before in a different era? Um, if uh, elegiac means a bit sad, were you thinking that, um, then it's not intentional. Um, you don't set out to write in a particular way. It just sort of happens. 
looking back on it, I never reread my books. I, I didn't like to. I don't know why. Um, if they seem quite good to me, I get depressed that I can't do it anymore. If they seem bad, then I'm just depressed. So I don't really, um, I'm not sure whether it seems elegiac. I suppose it does a bit. I suppose it does. A little, a little, there's a, a tinge of sadness to it. You've said that travel has always been a kind of addiction for you, but you said you've never thought of it as an escape because people say to you, what are you, what are you going away for? What are you escaping from? But you've said, if anything, I think I'm confronting the world when I travel. For me, staying at home has much more to do with escape. What did you mean by that? Well, um, it's a sort of cliche to say about people who travel rather compulsively, even if it's their profession, uh, that they're escaping something. Um, to me, um, it seems like confronting the reality of the world itself rather than my own very small corner of it. And I was brought up in a, a rather conventional sort of privileged middle-class environment in which it's very easy to sit and stay at home and take some holidays in Europe and that's the end of it. But not to, for me at least, not to travel um, in particularly in, in the great countries of Asia, would I, I found it would be almost like a, um, a shortcoming in my case. Um, I wanted to know about them. I wanted to know in particular who were these enemies that I'd inherited. Just as my parents were brought up in the fear of Germany, I was brought up in the fear of, of Russia, of the Soviet Union, and the fear of China beyond these great communist giants as they were then. And not to see them, not to experience them and confront them, even in a very limited way I've been able to, um, would seem to be falling short for me. Colin, I wasn't able to say this because I was busy coughing through my introduction of you, but I wanted to tell you how much your work has meant to me. And uh, as I said, I, as quite a young person, I read uh, among the Russians and it, it made a tremendous impact on me, your insights into other places and, and people going as you say, behind walls, across borders. I just wanted to thank you so much for your body of work. It's, it's really, the, your books are wonderful. Well, thank you. <laughs> Good to hear that, especially, especially at my age. <laughs> thank you very much. It's been lovely talking to you. Please stay around and um, come back a little bit later. We have to move on now. Kia ora, Colin. Thank you very much. Thank you. Our next writer today is Rosa Lou, author of the essay collection, All Who Live on Islands. An engineer who works now as a software developer, Rose wrote these essays for her master's at Victoria University and her manuscript won the 2018 Modern Letters Nonfiction Prize. One of the essays, Cleaver, has been broadcast on Radio New Zealand National and will appear next year in the New Asian Voices Anthology, edited by Alison Wong and me, published by Auckland University Press, which will feature the work of 70 emerging Asian New Zealand writers. Tanakwe Rose. Hey. Rose, can we begin by picking up on the language issue that just discussing with Colin. I mean, at the end of your book, you point out that the designation of Mandarin as a language and everything else as a dialect was a political decision made in the 20th century. You yourself grew up in a household of three languages with your grandparents speaking something different from your parents. 
uh, Chongming rather than Mandarin. How do the differences in those languages make you aware of deeper differences in the country your parents left? Um, so I didn't really realise that Mandarin was quite a political issue until I went to China in my mid-twenties. Um, and um, I had this funny realization where I, I knew that there were dialects um, and I knew that some dialects were more similar to Mandarin than others. And because I had always grown up hearing Chongminghua, which is very similar to Shanghainese in the house, I had assumed that like Shanghainese was one of the ones that were closer to Mandarin because I'd always understood it. And then I talked to native Chinese speakers. And they'd be like, oh, no, no, no. Like Shanghainese is one of the hardest ones to understand for native Chinese speakers. Um, but I think what's really interesting uh, about that and the fact that the language differences are very generational is um, another fascinating thing about Mandarin that I find is that um, like within the grammar, there is an idea of words that are spoken versus words that are written down. And I think that same divide exists in English as well, but maybe it's not codified in the same way. But I think it emerges because, um, because there are like older generations of Chinese people that don't have access to as much Mandarin, then kind of like the everyday language tends to be a bit simpler than like literary language, which then has the sort of that richer and fuller vocabulary. Yeah, and I just think it's a really interesting way to approach language, to have that construct of a, oh, we say this word out loud, but we might only write this word on paper. And it's kind of, yeah, and I don't think the same thing exists in English, but it's it, it's kind of does if you think about the different words that you might use in different regions or different words that mark you out from being like from a particular class and it's yeah it's um i think traveling through different cultures you sort of see the same things about your culture that maybe aren't named in that same way and i find that really interesting absolutely it suggests a whole secret world um that we don't have access to unless we're in the moment of conversation now many of your essays chart a relationship with the notion of home. And you've lived in a number of places around New Zealand and Wellington right now, but in the past, Whanganui and Auckland. A few years ago, you spent several months in China and you said you were surprised at how quickly you felt at home there. And I wondered what made you feel at home? Um, I, I think where I'm kind of at now with home is that like it's, it's sort of what you want it to be. And yeah, as someone who's like being very itinerant for a lot of my life and having to like constantly adopt um, new places and change. I think it's more about finding the things that make you feel comfortable. And sometimes it's just about owning that space rather than sort of waiting for that invitation. And that's something that I felt like I've had to learn to do. Um, but like in saying that also, it's just a real basic thing of you just don't look different from everyone else. Um, and yeah, and it's really different to living in New Zealand sometimes where you are really actively aware of how different you are. And even though most Chinese people could tell that I wasn't from China because I dressed a bit differently or I carried myself a bit differently, um, I think the sort of like perception was still like, oh, well, you've left, but you're here now and you're still one of us. Yeah, and it's just like a very, like I felt like an expat rather than a migrant, you know? Yeah. In your very first essay in the book, you have uh, this very uh, this great scene where you are moving from 
your house into the dairy your parents used to to run and you show yourself changing slippers from your lounge pair to your house pair to the shop pair and it seems to me to be quite emblematic of the different worlds you have to navigate um, and in another essay, How Is Your Health, you, you write about that specifically, about differing cultural perceptions of fat and how you used to scandalise your Pākehā flatmates with stories of your family's ceremonial weighing. Would you talk a bit about that? <laughs> the ceremonial weighing? Um, yeah, I think there are just like, um, yeah, I think with the fat one specifically, that's quite funny because it is such like a loaded term in um English and not that China is like absolved of any like fat shaming tendencies, but I think that it, it, it is kind of a bit more affectionate sometimes. Um, and I think, um, like it's really common to have um nicknames which are like Xiaopangzi, like little fatty, and um, you know, I think people grow out of those and maybe people don't have them into adulthood, but I think it's sort of there's this acknowledgement of like, oh, this is just how some people are um and i'm not saying that it's not used as a pejorative in china as well um but it can be like a bit more affectionate and like definitely in like my family context um it was definitely a way of my parents sort of like inquiring about me and being like oh like are you okay are you looking after yourself like are you eating well are you being healthy um and i think it's just a really interesting way to frame that because I think sometimes in Pākehā cultures there's this like very tortured relationship to food where it's just like oh like you know like this food is good today and this food is bad and like rah 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 and I think I felt quite lucky to be brought up without any of that sort of baggage and it's very nice in my family context to be like you eat well and you eat a lot and that's like celebrated yeah well, in fact, you have an old essay that really celebrates not just food, but the preparation food, cleaver, that we mentioned before, um, where you really interrogate the intricacies of preparing food. And you ask the question, is it possible just to learn by, by watching what we absorb unconsciously? Of food is an essential part of this book and of that essay in particular, is it not? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think... It's really weird, like, I okay, so I really hate the term foodie. Like, um, I think it's like a very Western construct because in, like, a lot of Western cultures, it's it's not normalised to be that into food, whereas, like, I think no one in China would really be like, oh, I'm a foodie. You'd just be like, well, what are you talking about? Like, everyone is really into food. It's just kind of, it's kind of normal. So I find it's, like, again, strange. It's like, what is reflected back is like this cultural difference of like where food is positioned um, within different cultures. Um, and yeah, I do love food um, and I do watch a lot of food videos. I still watch a lot of food videos. There's so many um, good Chinese food bloggers at the moment. And I think China itself is kind of going through like a food revival as well. Um, and like, especially in the last 20 years, I feel like um, because people have sort of become wealthier, there's a lot more access to food and access to that. So it's really exploded everywhere. Um, and especially regional food passing through from like one region to another, because right, currently, if you go to China, if you go to any sort of major city, you could probably access regional food from every part of China. Um, and 
I remember I was talking to my Mandarin teacher. Um, she grew up in Harabing, um, and we were talking about lotus root, which is something that I've always had. And she was saying that she didn't have that until she was about 20 because she grew up in Harabing, and that's like a very di different root culture from where lotus root normally is. And so, like, I think this yeah, discovery is kind of happening everywhere, and it's just it's an easy thing to talk about with people. <laughs> yeah. Rose, will you read to us from your book, please? Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to read from my first essay called Chung Ren Dian, Four Ren Dian, which is um, about a trip where I take my grandparents to the supermarket. Boa has already taken herself in a trolley through the clanging safety barrier that allows passage in one direction but not the other. Gong Gong takes his time entering, metal rods chiming individually as he ambles in. A stand of white-fleshed peaches catches Boa's eye. Their skins are a perfect blend of pink and white with a thin layer of mottled fuzz. She inspects the peaches, picking up each one and doing a full rotation to check for bruising. Satisfied, she places one in the plastic bag. She exclaims, gesturing at the peaches, telling me that they're fantastic. She uses a word that doesn't have a Mandarin counterpart. I used to think that the dialect we spoke was only phonetically different, that I could map the eight tones into Mandarin's four, but I've realized that it has different vocabulary and grammar as well. They're not mutually intelligible. How much of the peaches, she asks. I know she can't read Mandarin, let alone English, but now I'm unsure if she can read numbers. Perhaps she can't match the numbers with the English signs. I tell her that they're $6 a kilo. She nods, satisfied. The bag steadily fills as more peaches meet the requirements of her thorough inspection. She places the bag in the trolley and moves on to the next fruit. After they have selected their desired fruit, I take them through the checkout. They wait patiently as each bag is weighed and placed into the new trolley. That comes to 23.56, says the checkout operator. I give her two $20 notes from my mum. She hands back the change and, it, and I put it straight into my pocket. Godiva, is the change correct? Boa points at my pocket with her crooked finger. Once, I asked Boa why her finger was like that. She told me she was the youngest of the children in her family and she loved to eat sugar cane. One day, she wanted to eat some, but none of her older siblings could be bothered hacking off a section for her. Exasperated, one of them told her to do it herself. She took a cleaver to the woody cane and accidentally cleaved off her fingertip. At this point in the retelling, she clutched her injured finger with the opposite hand and pretended to cry out for help, as if she were little again, as if the wound were still fresh. Why looks at me. Digger, of course, I reply, patting my cardigan pocket, not bothering to check. Technically, my ye and nene, grandparents, are my wei gong wei po, grandparents on my mother's side. I never liked how wei gong or wei po sounded. Wei translates to foreign, outside or external, as if they were standing outside our family, looking in but never participating. It didn't reflect how I felt about them, so I didn't address them in that way. They came to Aotearoa in late 1999, just after my brother was born. 
They would have been in their early 60s back then. My mum is an only child, so unlike my dad's parents, her parents didn't need to split their attention between families. I don't know many specifics about my grandparents, like exactly how old they are or how to write their names. None of these details are important. Western birthday celebrations have never been a feature of our home life. They can speak their given names, but like me, they don't know which characters make them up. I call them Gong Gong Grandpa and Boa Grandma, and they call me Shoiku, a family nickname that means little happy dog. I assume the middle character is taken from my Chinese name, but I don't know for sure. It's another name that is spoken rather than written. Back in China, there were farmers, the poorest class. It brings Boa endless delight that the farmers here are affluent. She doesn't understand how it's possible. Her sense of the vocation doesn't extend past the notion of planting crops as the single means to, to food, supplemented by a few chickens and maybe a goat in a good year. In Wanganui, Boa is farming again, tending to her vegetable garden every day. They have a lot of time on their hands. Before we moved here, my brother hadn't started school, so my grandparents were kept busy caring for him while my parents worked. My brother Matthew is never asked to do chores for our grandparents. It's partly because he's too busy with school, but partly because he doesn't understand much Tongming dialect. Mine isn't great either, but it's passable. Anything more complex than fruit prices requires me to switch to Mandarin. Thank you. Thanks very much, Rose. Now, we were speaking with Maggie O'Farrell earlier, um, and she's talked about one key issue in writing memoir as she sees it, that it includes people like your grandparents who don't have a right of reply. And she said her concerns in writing a memoir was that she didn't fleece people I love, as she put it. And how did you approach writing about you know, family as you do extensively in this book, but also friends and colleagues? Yeah, well, in the MA, you're really encouraged to um, not think about anything that happens um, after the manuscript is produced. And I think that's just sort of to, to, to get the like good stuff out there and to not worry about the sort of potential impacts. But um, after it did look like, oh, I was like, okay, this is going to get published. I should really consult people. Um, yeah, so I got my parents to read the manuscript um uh and there was and that was interesting because there was quite a lot about my life that I never told them um like I never came out to my parents um and I talk about like my ex-girlfriend in, in, in the book and they sort of like they I came across them in the dairy and they were like reading that section and my mum was like looking really angrily at my dad and pointing at the page because the scene is that like um me and my uh, ex-girlfriend we had like traveled to Thailand together with my dad but I just hadn't told him so my mum was kind of like how did you not notice this and just like watch them have the scene in the dairy and I was just like okay not gonna talk to them right now just gonna head back in and like we've just never talked about it um and they're really happy about the book so um yeah, I think they sort of appreciated that they were really busy, especially um, during a lot of like my teenagers. It was kind of like when we first started operating the dairy um, and they just had no idea what was going on for me. Um, and I think they also felt really 
like, yeah, privileged to be able to understand a lot of what was going on for my life as well, because they were so busy trying to like keep the family afloat. So it's been really lovely because it's actually brought us like quite a lot closer. Um, and also I used to think of my parents as being like really um, incapable of reflection. Um, and I think what I've realized is that they were just really busy. They were like just working 70 hour weeks. And now, now that they've retired and my dad's like, he's like, I've read your book twice. And like, sometimes they like take pictures and send me passages and write like a little review. Um, and it's been just, yeah, just overwhelmingly lovely, the reception just from my immediate family. Yeah, it's been yeah more than I imagined, yeah. That's great, Rose. Thank you so much for joining us and please stick around for our conversation in a little bit. Kia ora. Kia ora. Our final writer today is Anne Patchett, the acclaimed author of nonfiction and also eight celebrated novels, including Belcanto, State of Wonder and Commonwealth. Her new novel, The Dutch House, has been described as a subtle mystery and psychological page turner. It's the story of a grand home that seems to undo the lives of its inhabitants. In a multi-decade spanning narrative, the Conroy siblings, Danny and Maeve, lose everything but each other and grow fixated with the house from which they're exiled. And I have to tell you, I read this novel in one very long, rapturous sitting because I could not put it down. Tanau Kwe Anne, and welcome again. Thanks so much, I'm glad to be here. Now, Anne, in your first novel, The Patron Saint of Liars, which was published back in 1992, if you can remember such a time. Um, a woman uh, flees her marriage, though not her children, and Alice McDermott, writing about the book, called it a made-up story of an enchanted place, a fairy tale, a delight. Now, the Dutch house is an enchanted place as well, but a place of dark enchantments, perhaps. And I wondered, what came first for you with this book? Was it the house itself or the people who long for it? Um, you know, it was it was the people. And certainly it originally was the mother and not the children. My first idea for this book was to write the story of a woman who had been quite poor her whole life and then became very, very rich. And she simply couldn't bear it. And, and it, was, it was a novel about her. I actually wrote this book twice. So the first time it was a book about the mother and I got all the way to the end and I thought, no, I'm actually a lot more interested in the children and in the people who worked in the house. And the mother then became a kind of a minor character. But it, the house was not what it was, it was about. Um, it was about the mother, it was about the daughter. Um, I originally thought that the book was going to be called Maeve because it was just the story of Maeve, who is Danny's sister. But you write these things and they change. It's interesting talking about mothers because in your book, there are many literary layers. And at one point, two of the characters are reading the Marilyn Robinson novel, Housekeeping. And I was thinking, well, that's also a novel about two siblings and a mother who leaves and a replacement mother who is not maternal in an expected way. And then I thought in your novel, there are in fact three mothers, aren't there? There's the mother who leaves, the stepmother who cannot love, and the sister who is a surrogate mother and overprotects. Yes. But you're not a judgmental writer in any way, and this is not a bad mother book, is it? No, no, not at all. I mean, it, it really isn't. And, and frankly, even Andrea, the stepmother, who is terrible, 
uh, we're only seeing her through Danny's eyes. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're getting only one perspective on the story. We never get her point of view. So is she actually that terrible? That's one of the things that the reader has to bear in mind. And many reviews have discussed the novel's fairy tale elements, its doubles and its archetypes, the two children who are thrown out of the family home after their father's death by a cold stepmother, Andrea, as you say. And you've described yourself as a very plot-driven person and said that you think all stories go back to fairy tales and parables and saints because, of course, you grew up Catholic and there is a Catholic element in this book as well. Were you conscious of this fairy tale element when you were writing it? I think certainly to some extent I was because it does come up again and again and there's a reference to Hansel and Gretel. And um, I, I feel like ever since Alice McDermott wrote that review of the Patron Saint of Liars in 1992, every single thing I have ever written has been compared to a fairy tale. And at some point I just thought, I'm not going to fight this anymore. Um, <laughs> I, I do I do like small stories with um, with morals and plots and um, and consequences. And that probably does go back to Butler's Lives of the Saints as much as it does fairy tales. I'm in a rut, you know, I think we all are. <laughs> now in the novel, you also reference the Great Gatsby in terms of the parties that originally held in this great house in the twenties. And that also immediately raises notions that we're thinking about American success stories, second acts, reinventions. Um, in the Dutch house, fortunes are made and lost and made again. And the house itself is this repository of dreams that means so much to different inhabitants. And I wondered, have you managed, Anne Patchett, to combine the English country house novel and the great American novel in one? It was a snap. Was <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that before. I really like that. I, I think that they should put that on the cover of the paperback. She combines the English country house and the great American novel. It's beautiful. Let's, let's add something to the mix because in your character's obsession with the past and with a particular house, you also seem to me to have written a very Faulknerian Southern novel that just happens to be set in Philadelphia. Boy, there's nothing to me Faulknerian about this novel. And, and I say that as a Southerner, um, Faulkner is really tough. And, and very purposefully tough. And I think if anything, I am a purposefully simple and straightforward writer. I, I go through my manuscript again and again and think, how can I make this clearer and more accessible? So I, I'm, I'm not treading in Faulkner country at all. Except, I mean, you're talking about your clarity of your prose, which is fantastic, but there is still a lot of psychological complexity to your characters, obviously, which makes the story so rich. And also the sense that the past is really not the past. Well, that is true. And, and more and more, um, I feel that the past is not the past. And I was very struck by that when, uh, when Colin, when you were speaking and reading about your experiences and uh, what you were reading could have been written this week. And so, yes, we all run in cycles and everything, everything that is old is new again. The, the, 
image on the cover of your book, Anne, it was the painting, um, it's a painting that is cited in the text. Was it painted specifically for the cover of your book? Yes, and I actually could stand up and it, it's in the room where I am. Um, when I finished the book, I, I called my friend Noah Satterstrom, who's a wonderful painter who lives here in town. And I asked him if he could paint the portrait of Maeve. It was very, very important to me that there not be any architectural element on the cover of the book because the Dutch house has to exist in the imagination of the reader. But I love the idea that this painting that is in the book would be on the cover. And uh, Noah has three tiny children. And he said, I, I can paint it, but I don't have time to read the book. So the painting is only mentioned um, on two pages. There's like maybe three paragraphs in the entire book about the painting. So I sent him those paragraphs and he read it and he did that painting in three days. It, it's quite huge and it's, it's beautiful. And um, it's the only time in my career that I said this image has to be on the cover of every foreign edition. I, I wasn't going to leave it to chance because it was exactly the right cover. And I'm really glad you did because it actually adds another uh, strange reading layer to the experience yeah. where we're somehow convinced that all this is really true because there's the painting on the cover of the book. Absolutely. And I, and I didn't, I wasn't really thinking about it so clearly until I saw the painting, but I thought I can't remember another book in which the cover image is actually part of the plot where you're reading along and you suddenly think, oh my gosh, I mean, that's just not an illustration of the character. That is the actual painting of her that is hanging in the house. And that becomes so important to the story as we move through it. And would you read to us from the novel, please? I will. And, um, and I'm glad now that I picked this part because Danny and Maeve go back to the house after they're thrown out. They go back throughout their life and they park in front of it. And so this is a scene where they are going back and parking in front of the house. Maeve and I had been playing tennis over at the high school when she broke up the game after a single crack of lightning. I had an aluminum racket and she said she wasn't about to watch me get electrocuted during a serve. So we got in the car and we drove over to the Dutch house just to check on things before dark. The summer was essentially over and soon it would be time for me to go back for my second year at Choate. We were both miserable about it, each in our own way. I remember the very first time I saw this house, Maeve said, straight out of nowhere, the felted sky hung over us waiting to split apart. You do not, you were just a baby then. She cranked down the window of the Volkswagen. I was almost six. You remember things from when you were six. I'll tell you what, you would have remembered coming here. She was right, of course. So what happened? Dad borrowed some guy's car and he drove us up from Philadelphia. It must have been a Saturday, either that or he'd taken a day off from work. Maeve stopped and looked through the linden trees, trying to put herself back there. In the summer, you really couldn't see anything. The leaves were so thick. Coming up the driveway, the house was shocking. That the only, that's the only word for it. I mean, it's second nature to you. You were born here. You probably grew up thinking everybody lived in a house like this. I shook my head. I thought everybody who went to Choate lived in a house like this. Maeve laughed. Even though she'd forced me into boarding school, she was happy whenever I maligned it. 
dad had already bought the place and mommy didn't know a goddamn thing about it. What? I'm serious. He bought it for her as a surprise. Where did he get the money? Even when I was in high school, that was my first question. Maeve shook her head. All I know is that we were living on the base and he said we were going to go for a ride in a friend's car. Pack a lunch, everybody in. I mean, that was pretty crazy all by itself. It's not like we had ever borrowed somebody's car before. The family was the three of them then. I was nowhere in the picture. Maeve had one tan arm stretched along the top of the seat behind my head. She'd gotten me a job at Otterson's frozen vegetables for the summer, counting out plastic bags of corn and taping them into boxes. On the weekends, we'd play tennis at the high school. We kept our rackets and a can of tennis balls in the car. And sometimes she'd show up at lunch and whisk me off for the game right in the middle of the workday. Dad was practically gleeful on the drive. He kept pulling over the side of the road to show me the cows, to show me the sheep. It was all very jolly. Hard to picture, I said. Like I said, it was a long time ago. Okay, so then you got here. She was nodding, digging through her purse. Dad pulled all the way up to the front of the house and the three of us got out of the car and just stood there gaping. Mommy asked if it was a museum and he shook his head. And then she asked him if it was a library and he said, it's a house. Did it look the same? Pretty much. I mean, the yard was in rough shape. I remember the grass was really high. Dad asked mommy what she thought about the house and mommy said, well, it's something all right. Then he looked right at her with this huge smile and he said, it's your house. I bought it for you. Now, seriously? The air inside the car was heavy and hot. Even with the windows down, our legs stuck to the seat. My sister said he had not one clue. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anne. Now, speaking of not having one clue, Danny, our narrator in the book, he repeats the mistake of his father, does he not? He ends up buying his own wife a house in New York City that she doesn't want either. That's um, how life works, right? We just we just repeat the mistakes of our parents, yes. You've created a, a wonderful narrator in Danny because he is both sympathetic but very flawed. He is He kind of misses a lot, but yet we're able to see around him. I mean, why did you choose him to tell the story rather than Maeve, who is the other central character? And he says towards the end of the book, I thought I was telling Maeve's story. I hadn't written a first person novel since 1994. And the most important thing to remember when you write in first person is that you only have access to that character's point of view. And it has to be someone who wants to tell the story, right? So Maeve wouldn't have any interest in telling her own story. It's Danny who is the talker, the sharer. And so he's gonna tell the story. Maeve, Maeve was too private. She would never tell a, a whole novel about herself. And too secretive as well, yes. Yes. She's an admirably secretive person, a really a great character. Um, 
I have to tell you, Anne, that when I was reading your book, uh, my husband grew annoyed because every so often towards the end, I would shout out a twist, then another twist, and then <laughs> another twist. And I'm, I'm making your book sound, you know, as though it was written by, I don't know, Tom Clancy. But it's, <laughs> these are subtle psychological twists, but where more things are revealed. Do you see it as a psychological thriller? Um, you know, I certainly compared to the other books in my body of work. Yes, it's a psychological thriller. Um, it, it's uh, there are more twists. There are more things going on, but it is very, very quiet in its in its nature. I do like a book that keeps me turning the pages where you think, I'm going to go to bed at the end of this chapter. Wait, no, I have to read one more chapter. So you can tell your husband, I did, in fact, mean to do. <laughs> he just held up a little note to me to say, it's time for everyone. So could we invite uh, to Rose and Colin back to join you, Anne? This is such an interesting conversation. Um, Colin, Rose, Anne, um, the books we're discussing today, we travel, don't we? We travel from the Pacific to the Mediterranean, to cities and deserts and mountains, to dairies and temples, muddy lanes, frozen vegetable factories, as you just mentioned, Anne, to Stratford in the 16th century and Philadelphia in the 50s. But at the same time, we're all speaking to each other via Zoom and our little small pools of isolation around the world. Now, when we can't leave home, as I said earlier in the episode, we travel through reading. And I wondered if there's a particular book that you would say to all our friends around the world who are currently in lockdown or quarantine, this is the book you should read to transport yourself. Um, Colin, do you have any recommendations for us or suggestions? There's one book that I think uh, takes people to, to traveling um, from the armchair. It's called Invisible Cities by Italo Calvino, the Italian writer and novelist. Um, it's a beautiful, strange book about magical cities, cities that suggest um, things but are not um, specific places. Um, and it's apparently the narrative told by Marco Polo to Kublai Khan um, when he's asked about his travels. And so these are inventive cities, cities that you can go to without moving uh, a yard. Um, I would recommend those. They're very short, um, but very beautiful. That's a wonderful recommendation, Colin. It's one of my favourite books and was really the, the key for me in structuring one of my novels. So uh, thank you. What a fantastic suggestion. Rose, what would you recommend for us? Um, yeah, I think similarly to what Colin was saying about like wonderful and magical transportations, what Anne was saying about page turners, um, I think it's, yeah, time is right for page turners. You want that time to be passing quickly so you so it goes through. But um, I would definitely recommend the Northern Lights Trilogy by Philip Pullman. Like, oh, man, those are such fantastic books. And there's three of them and they're pretty chunky, but you do not feel the time passing when you're reading them. And I think that's something that people need at the moment. There was a recent uh, television adaptation, wasn't there, of His Dark Materials? Yeah. Um, Did you yeah. Watch it's good. It's good. Yeah. Books are better, but, you know. I know. Well, as Anne was saying, what we imagine is often greater and more uh, richer and more diverse than, than an image that's shown to us. 
And you, uh, I should have said earlier, of course, you run a bookshop in, in Nashville. What is your recommendation? Um, mine is a little contrarian, but I'm going to recommend my very favorite novel, which is Independent People by Haldor Laxness, um, Iceland's only literary Nobel in 1951. And it's, it is a book about stillness and staying inside and in one place forever and ever. And if you think you are locked down, you will have a whole different idea of what it means to be locked down after you read Independent People, which is the great novel of sheep and black coffee. Have any of you read Independent People? Anyway, it's, it's a magnificent, very, very still book. Um, but it's gorgeous and so weird, and I love it. And we had an Icelandic upstairs neighbour when I was at, at the University of Iowa, and he gave me a Haldor Luxness book, but not that one. But, uh, yeah, we learned a lot about Iceland that year. Yeah. And and I have to say just briefly, um, I learned the concept from him of Red Christmas, which is what they call it in Iceland when it doesn't snow. And I said yeah. to him, we, we have one of those every year in New Zealand. And... Uh, and I'm in fact called a story after that. So excellent recommendations. And two about islands, actually, because we have Iceland and then we have Venice. So let's pretend, you know, all Venice is on an island. And then Rose's book is about islands. So here I'm drawing everything together. I'm saying islands a lot. And that seems pretty good to me. Now, I think we do, unfortunately, have to end this episode. Um, kia ora very much to Maggie, who had to leave us, to Colin, to Rose and Anne. It's almost time for me to hand over to another Anne, Anne O'Brien and the festival team. And they will thank our writers at more length for giving us your time today. Um, before I disappear from your screens, um, may I just say a couple of quick thank yous of my own. Uh, the first is to Tom Moody, my husband, who has done wide-ranging research for me every week on our books and writers, and also has made a valiant attempt to keep each segment running to time by holding up cards that only I can see and that I have, as you know, tended to ignore. Um, the second thank you is to the late Norman Mailer, whose very big books have propped up my laptop uh, each week, at last justifying to me at least their place on our bookshelves. And so finally, <laughs> before I start coughing again, um, may I thank Anne O'Brien for giving me this opportunity to speak with 37 writers over these weeks. It's been a privilege and a great pleasure to host this series over three months. Anne, as many of you know, is a person of tremendous energy, insight and vision. And she continues to invigorate and transform our literary landscape here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Kia ora Anne and to our viewers from me, haerera koutou. Kia ora, Paula, and thank you for those really kind words. I'm going to start by acknowledging you. Someone has just uh, sent in a message, as people have done every single uh, week for 13 weeks, to say how incredible you are. Paula, a writer, a teacher, a literary powerhouse, and really we could not have found anyone anywhere to have done such a beautiful, warm, intelligent job of hosting this series. You have been an absolute star and we're in awe. So kia ora to you. There are, of course, others to thank from the last uh, 13 weeks. I first of all want to acknowledge Auckland Live. They are, of course, our live venue partner, but we couldn't do that this year. They have been generous from the very beginning in supporting this series with their time, with their resources. And in particular, I want to acknowledge Bernie and Ange and Francis, who each week as our technical director has delivered the seamless 
this experience. Uh, the first week, none of us slept all night long. We were absolutely terrified. Everything would go down and be a disaster. And Francis has just been a wonderful person to work with. So thank you, Francis. Copyright Licensing New Zealand gave us a grant that has helped for us cover the payments to our writers. The Auckland Writers Festival believes that every writer should be paid for their work, both in buying their books and for what they do on festival stages. And we pay them always. I need to acknowledge the Auckland Writers Festival team, uh, our Nicholas Strawbridge, who's produced this series, Tessa Yeoman, our marketing and development manager, and Lisa and Roger and Chris. Every week, it's a, it's a big thing to get up every Sunday after you've lost your six-day celebration, but over these last 13 weeks, they have kept this series rolling, and um, I really acknowledge their commitment to the festival and uh, their collegiality alongside me as part of this team. Host Tina Makariti stepped in a couple of weeks ago. She curated our Māori series for the festival this year, the Onayane series. And of course, a couple of weeks ago, she hosted a really special uh, episode with Renee, Joshua Whitehead from Canada and Ruby. Um, and I suggest if you didn't see that, you check it out. I want to thank the audience from New Zealand and around the world. Thousands of you have come and listened and watched, uh, sometimes uh, live, although a lot of you discovered quite early on that you didn't actually have to get up right at nine o'clock because, of course, all of these episodes are on our website and they're on our YouTube channel and there they will stay. So catch up with the episodes that you missed, go back to the ones you loved and tell other people um, to, to make the most of this. And when you're there on our website, you'll also find a wonderful, rich archive of sessions from the festival past. So get in amongst that. Last but not least, I want to thank um, our wonderful writers. It's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege over the last 13 weeks to bring this luminous selection of um, 40 writers, Paula. You've done more than 37 um, out of a, a cast list of over 200 who are due to appear here. And if you want the reading list for 2020, the Auckland Writers Festival program is available. We can send that out to you. These are very strange and sometimes unsettling times, but stories prevail. Writers are artists. In a remarkable feat, they bring observation and imagination and language together to reflect us to ourselves, to reflect to us the world around us. Um, the borders may be closed, but the world remains open, and I invite you to read it in these books and all the other books on your shelves. Whilst you're reading, we are reading too. We have set our sights on May 2021, and I'm so heartened to hear Colin say, as I secretly believe in my heart too, that people will travel again, and we will bring this festival back to the stage where all that energy uh, will sort of surge up. So next year, the 11th to the 16th of May 2021 at the RTS Centre in Auckland, we look forward to seeing you there. But for now, it's goodbye from us. We are going to finish with a montage of, of the writers from the previous episodes and the AWF production team. We look forward to seeing you soon. Read, read, read. Hi, Rara.